Hi, everybody. This is Christian Cisan, and this is the July edition of the Third Fridays podcast. We're coming to you live from the Kill Room at Lois Law Firm. Last month, we had talked about a favorable board panel decision uh, reached in a case that we defended uh, that really helped us defend claims as it relates to producing witnesses and uh, preserving all defenses. Please be sure to check that out. Uh, We're on iTunes and anywhere you can get podcasts, SoundCloud, or even uh, the firm website and fireside.fm. But today we're actually doing something a little bit more familiar to the defense. It's actually what could be considered an unfavorable decision. And it's important to get the facts straight, discuss what we think it means, and also predict how the board's going to react to it because that puts us in a best position to defend claims and close them in an efficient manner. So today we have on the show uh, Andrea Abudaya, and she is going to help help us really discuss what this case means. So what uh, has been the buzz at the board uh, lately, Andrea? So about a month ago, a decision came down that is talking about what to do in cases where claimant has both schedulable and non-schedulable injuries. You know, previously when people had a permanent disability to the neck and back or any type of non-schedulable condition, and they also had an injury to an extremity, they were not entitled to get a scheduled loss of use award unless they had no further costly related disability to their non-schedulable sites. Right. So we actually were defending claims based on really the claimant's work status, right? Uh, If they had schedule and non-schedule sites, uh, we really had to go after which was more favorable to our position. And, of course, that is a generic argument that we'd make for every issue in workers' comp. But that's what it was based on. Now, this case you're talking about was a little bit different, resulted in in a a result that really needs some clarification, right? It definitely needs some clarification. I know that some of the claimant attorneys that I spoke to were celebrating this as a huge win. Uh, The decision states that if the claimant is not entitled to a non-schedule award, he would be entitled to a schedule loss of use award at the time, regardless of whether he has a continuing disability to non-scheduled body parts at the time of classification. Okay, so let's flesh that out. Uh, Pre-case, pre-this case, I guess, to to put it best, uh, we have this type of claimant who has a severity ranking of F to a non-schedule site and a schedule loss of use opinion to schedule sites. And because he's working and has residual permanent disability to the non-schedule sites, then he doesn't become eligible for the schedule loss of use award because there exists the permanent disability. Non-schedule essentially trumps schedule, right? Does that make sense? Right. And because he has no reduced earnings, he's not entitled to any indemnity benefits at the time. Right. And we like those cases because it doesn't move any money when we're able to prove that there is residual permanent disability. And board panel decisions have enforced that theory. So this case, we have the same fact pattern And the appellate division kind of makes a bit of a left turn here. And I really want to focus on the last paragraph of their opinion, I guess the last full paragraph, uh, where they specifically state, if any of the claimants lost, or absent a determination of the extent, if any, of the claimants lost wage earning capacity due to his non-schedule permanent partial disability classification, The board did not err to the extent that it found that claimant is not presently entitled to an SLU award. So when I first saw that sentence, 
I almost said, okay, we're not really moving too far away from where we were, right? Because it says that if the non-scheduled disability impacts lost wage earning capacity, then we're safe, right? But tell me why that is kind of contradictory to the rest of the opinion. Because right after that, it goes on to say, however, um, and it talks about if the claimant is not entitled to a non-scheduled award. And the decision they're citing prior to this is Gallman versus Waltz. And in that decision, they define award as a monetary benefit. If you are working and you have a permanent partial disability, you're not entitled to a monetary benefit. So it really depends on the definition of the word award. Right. That's a good point because I think we, at, we actually discussed this, like what, is, what are they going to define as award? And uh, you, know, you really shepherdized the heck out of this one, went to that prior case, saw that they defined award as you know, the actual monetary benefit that we're going to give the claimant at classification or schedule loss of use time. And now we're faced with uh, a decision that really changes how we define permanency when, when a case is established for schedule and non-schedule. Okay, so claimant's attorneys are championing this as a huge win. Yes. Um, what have you done to kind of investigate as to how this is going to play out at the law judge level? I spoke to a couple of law judges about this decision. I wanted to know what their take on it was because law judges, like everybody else, is a little are a little wary of change. So I wanted to get how they thought this would be actually playing out. Um, we had some discussions. They Their interpretation or the interpretation generally had at this time is that if a claimant is entitled to both loss of wage earning capacity findings and a schedule loss of use findings, the claimant would get the schedule loss of use award initially and if eventually they do have to come out of work due to their permanent partial disability or loss of wage earning capacity injuries, the carrier would be entitled to take credit for the initial schedule loss of use and then pay out the remaining portion of the loss of wage earning capacity award if there is a remaining portion. And that's that's not really good for us. And and I, I don't want to, you know, push back on the appellate division too much, although I guess I really do, because I really think that this case should go up to the Court of Appeals. It's it's really a change and a huge change from how we used to defend claims prior to this. Uh, but I guess the problem is if you get the schedule award, he's still working, and then he goes out of work, you're going to have to litigate whether he goes out of work for the non-schedule sites as opposed to the schedule sites. Because if he gets a schedule award, let's say for the arm, mm -hmm. and then he can't work later because of the arm, the schedule loss of use award has already compensated him, right? And I did hear that argument when we were having sort of like a group mini discussion, but the judges tend to take non-schedule sites into account when making a loss of wage earning capacity determination. So the main litigation that will have to be had is if it's costly related lost time versus voluntary removal from the labor market. That is a conversation that will have to be had. But then you bring in the new, the other change that recently happened, where once you have a permanent partial disability, you don't have an obligation to attach yourself to the labor market. So the only consensus that I was able to get in the very, very many conversations I've had about this case is that it needs further clarification. <laughs> right. And actually, you bring up a good point. With the recent uh, new law passing uh, in April of last year, we have the 
the requirement or the requirement is gone that you don't have to attach yourself to the labor market after you're classified. So think about, you know, that same case where you get the award, you're now you're working and then after the award conceivably would have been over or maybe not, uh, you go out of work again, whether it's for the schedule site or the non-schedule site. If you're classed, you almost have to push temporary disability, well, unrelated wage loss, as you said, and voluntary removal. If that doesn't work, then you have to push temporary disability so you can raise attachment and have him look for work prior to classification, ultimately resulting in classification if applicable. And this is really something that I don't know if the third department has really contemplated because this is more something for board practice um, and so what I guess what I'm saying is this is far-reaching that I don't know if they really intended this to happen. Do you agree, disagree? Yeah, I don't think they thought all of the ramifications through. Um, there is conceivably also a case in which the claimant has a very high schedule loss of use and a very low loss of wage earning capacity. What happens in situations then? Like what awards should govern? Like what should be the cap as to the claimant's benefits? Some schedule losses of use can be huge, especially if there's multiple body parts involved in a schedule loss of use award. If the loss of wage earning capacity would entitle him to fewer weeks, should that then control the cap on the awards if the carrier would be entitled to take credit for those benefits anyway? Yeah, it's it's really putting, I think both parties actually, I mean, yes, it is it is a win for uh, the claimant's side, uh, but it, it does put them still in a position of having not just to say, okay, I'm working, even though I have non-scheduled disability, here's my SLU award. Like, you still have to go through the process and expect that defense is now going to push all these issues before you get to that eventual award. Uh, so it, it does throw a wrench in, in, into these things, and, and I, like you said, it does need clarification. I'm very anxious to see the first uh, law judge and board panel decision that really comments on it. And so for everybody, uh, there's no citation yet uh, that I know of, and we'll check on it uh, as soon as we can, but it's the claim of Mohammed Tahir, T-A-H-E-R, versus Yoda Taxi, decided by the third department on June 14th. Okay. So let's now put us in the position of this claim coming in, right? We have a claimant who theoretically has schedule and non-schedule sites examined, and the IME comes in says that he's reached MMI. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes the doctor doesn't consult the guidelines as to the specific level of permanency, so we have to get an addendum, but now, does the addendum language need to be changed based on this decision? What do you think? I think that just to protect the interests of the carrier, we need to get IMEs to comment on both what the permanent part, like the permanent disability is, as to the scheduled and the non-scheduled site. So theoretically, the doctor should say 2A to the neck and a 10% schedule loss of use to the wrist, if, especially if the claimant is working, because you need to litigate both things concurrently. And. Uh, you actually raise a good point because if you've got the non-schedule that he's got to comment on, then he's using the 2012 guidelines. And if it's a new case, then he's going to be using the 2017-18 guidelines for schedule loss of use. Um, I hope that IME doctors can realize this. Uh, you know, We obviously offer to draft cover letters for this purpose so that uh, they know which guidelines to use uh, you know, in contemplation of the purpose of the IME. 
But hopefully, you know, we can resolve it in a way that this gets the clarification uh, we need for this. So I, I'm hoping it really works out, but I really think at, <laughs> on first glance, we we would appeal this to the Court of Appeals. I, I don't think that it's it's really helpful to let this stand as good law because there's there, there's really no contemplation of the wide-reaching effects that this decision will have for uh, board practice and, and the regulations involved. I completely agree with that. Um, even if they did want to make a change, it has to be explained a lot more thoroughly and it has to be thought out as to all of the implications it has to the very many areas of workers' compensation law. Right now, if a claimant is working, theoretically they are not disabled to the extent that they can't work. And that has to be taken into consideration. This decision essentially gives them two awards for the same injury because you get your slew first and if eventually you decide to retire, you're already automatically entitled to whatever loss of wage earning capacity the judge gave you at classification. That's not, I believe, what the board panel decision, I mean, what the third department decision intended to do, but that is how some people are interpreting it at this time. And absent some clarification from a governing party, that is what the judges are going to have to decide. And there are so many judges that are going to try to interpret it in so many different ways in different jurisdictions, which is not something that's beneficial to anybody, I think. Right. So that's where we are right now. Uh, I actually was planning to do this month's podcast on the landmark Supreme Court decision in Janus that helped employers with respect to unions, but this one's a little bit more specific to our industry, uh, so it kind of trumps the Janus decision at as it relates to our purpose here. Um, but we, we will be certainly monitoring this issue uh, and hoping that defense counsel for that uh, case goes to the Court of Appeals of the state of New York. Uh, for Andrea Abudaya, my name is Christian Cisan, uh, and we are reminding you to defend from day one, and thank you for listening to this month's episode of the Third Fridays podcast.